Welcome to the Fair Talks Podcast, where we educate everyday people for extraordinary change. I'm your host, Alicia Chan, Executive Director of Fair Trade LA, a community of business members, nonprofits, and fair trade enthusiasts driving proactive, sustainable solutions for a fairer world. I'm also a social entrepreneur with a passion for ending poverty and creating dignified jobs. Together, we'll explore how fair trade changes lives and communities and what we can do to address some of the world's biggest problems right in our own homes. Let's dive in. Fair Talks is brought to you by Fair Trade USA, the organization that brings you the Fair Trade certified label. Fairtrade USA is committed to building an innovative model of responsible business, conscious consumerism, and shared value to eliminate poverty and enable sustainable development for farmers, workers, their families, and communities around the world. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to season four of the Fair Talks podcast. Hope you all had a lovely summer. Mine was packed with a lot of goodness. I've been working hard all summer to launch a preschool in Haiti, and we officially opened this month in September. It's been such a joy watching this come to life in our village fondues. It was not an easy lift, and there were many moving parts, but this experience honestly has made me even more in tune with the power of community development projects happening in developing communities all around the world through fair trade businesses many of whom we get to interview and speak with through this amazing Fair Talks podcast platform. Thank you for joining me on this journey to learn and support the amazing work happening through these different organizations and enterprises. I'm really looking forward to the lineup we have this season. I feel like each season just gets better and better. (laughs) And I don't want to spoil anything, but I can talk about who we have on the episode today. I've been admiring this fair trade brand from afar for many years. I've been so impressed by the wide range of products they offer and especially the quality of each item they create out of India. If you've been shopping fair trade, you probably know this company as well, and it is Mater Bumi. Mater Bumi is a fair trade company. Their collection blends the traditional art forms of India with timeless and modern design aesthetics, bringing people and cultures closer together. Their collection of jewelry, home decor, and unique gifts are made from natural and upcycled materials that are sourced in a, in a socially and environmentally responsible manner. They partner with over 1,500 artisans in marginalized communities throughout India to create economic and sustainable living opportunities. They also aim to break the gender and inequality gap by paving a path to create confidence for women artisans. This is done by investing in vocational training, literacy programs, and providing fair wage opportunities to women artisans to feel empowered to reach their full potential and become entrepreneurs. Today, we get to speak with the founder himself, Manish Gupta. On a trip back to India after years of living in the United States, he was struck by the material poverty of his homeland. With deep respect for the rich culture and the potential of rural Indians, he began to build a model of trade. He started partnering with grassroots organizations to transform unskilled men and women into master artisans. Manish then established a team in India to guarantee clear, efficient communications and high-quality production. He also gathered a team in Austin, Texas to design collections that entice the Western market while honoring the cultures and crafts of India. 
And more than a decade later, this little company has grown into a leading fair trade wholesaler and innovator in ethical, sustainable business. Manish is giving our listeners a generous discount off the entire collection at Modern Boomi, so make sure to stick around until the end for your exclusive discount code. Now, without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, Manish. Thank you so much for joining the Fair Talks podcast. I'm so excited to share your story. Thank you, Alicia. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So, I mean, before we dive into the awesome fair trade company, Matterbumi, a very successful fair trade business, I'd say, I want you to take us back to the beginning, like that trip that you took to your homeland, India, after years of living in the States. Like, how did that trip impact you? What are some of the sights and sounds that you experienced that just really inspired this business that we know as Matterbumi? <clears throat> So this is 2005. By training, I'm actually a, a chemical engineer and I wow. went to University of Michigan to do my master's in business operations and polymers. Growing up, my dream was to start a chemical industry. Wow. Which is so different from what I would do today. Um, yeah. But, you know, after going to the school in Michigan, I took up a job with Dell to pay my student loan. And that's how I landed up in Austin. And while I was working here, my sister in India has a handmade paper workshop. Mm. So I was helping kind of understand the market for her to kind of help them. And then realized that there is a market for handmade fair trade goods. So I decided to take a few months off and started traveling in India to meet some artisans to potentially find products. Mm. Um, and what I... I still remember going to the small village, going to, and in India, the way, especially I'm talking about 2005, there was, you know, most of the artisan communities are very small. These are like just independent individual artisans working in their homes. So there is no, they don't have a website. They don't, there is no listing online. So I, I couldn't Google, you know, weaving artisan and, you know, there would be a list for me. Um, I asked my mom and she asked her neighbor and they said, oh, yeah, you go to that region or that city or mm. that town. It's popular for this art. Oh. That was the starting point is just get on the train or the bus, you know, get down on the train station and start asking wow. people, hey, you know, I'm looking for some artisans to do pottery. And wow. uh, it can be challenging because sometimes the artisans are away from the cities and a lot of times people that you find in the city want to be the middleman they want to sell mm -hmm. you their product instead of them pointing me to meet the actual artisan which is what i really wanted to do so lots of fun stories around that but i remember meeting going to this artisan who was a weaver he was weaving beautiful fabric on a mm -hmm. hand loom in his house and he was an award-winning artisan like his designs were amazing he i think had a president award and he was, I think, in his late mid-60s, and he was wearing, he had a very thick glass on because, you know, he had to, mm. you know, be uh, very closely look at the weave. And when I asked him, hey, you know, how are you doing? You know, your art is so beautiful. He was very demotivated about mm. his art. He said he learned his art from his father, who learned from his father, and he came from a generation of weavers. And he said there was a time when, 
you know, they had a lot of respect in the, in the village because of their art. But even saying now, nobody cares. Um, the handmade fabric is very expensive. Uh, most people prefer to buy machine-made, inexpensive, fancy-looking textiles. Mm -hmm. And he said he can't make a living for his family doing his generational art. Mm -hmm. So he said, what good is this art if I can't make a living? And he didn't want his kids to take up his art. He wanted them to go mm -hmm. to the city and, yeah. and take jobs so they could support their family. And to me, like looking at, I mean, it was almost like the art was his inheritance, was his mm -hmm. self-confidence. And I think that was shattered with mm -hmm. how the times had changed. And mm -hmm. I saw that this beautiful way of life, this beautiful art dying. Yeah. And people moving out of villages and coming to cities. And once they come to cities, they have to take up odd jobs and live in slums, mm -hmm. which I thought was, was not where, you know, we want to see our communities to go. So I, I realized that artisans are struggling, which is something I had no understanding about. Because growing up, we saw art all around and we took it for granted and, mm. and thought that artisans are fine. But when I got into it, I realized that they're struggling. So I thought, you know, I'm looking to start a business. There seems to be, a, you know, a business model from a financial standpoint for me to mm. do this. And these artisans need a trading partner. So yeah. that is when the social aspect of the business came to me. Yeah. I thought, you know, why not give it a shot? Mm -hmm. I'll, worst case, I'll, I'll learn something and maybe give some business to the artisan. So uh, that's when I got started. I'm and curious one thing. I feel like you've always had a business mind, probably since you were little, I bet, just just from hearing that those stories. But how has your like computer engineering degree <laughs> played a role in all this? So you're absolutely right about me having an entrepreneurial <laughs> incline. I think the reason is both my parents have been entrepreneurs. My dad had a, a industrial chemical business. So when I was you know, mm -hmm. growing up, I would help him do distribution. And my mom has a women's boutique. Mm -hmm. So I also grew up, you know, going on buying trips with her and selling clothing to ah. her. So uh, I always knew that, you know, I'm going to start my own business. It was just a matter of finding the, the right fit. And to be honest, I think my engineering and my work with, with Dell really helped me understand how business here works. And it brought in a, a, a strong analytical lens to me and understanding of, you know, the basic business, you know, what are the basics that you need to get your right, like the customer service, the finance part of it, the operations part of it, and just working with people. Yeah. And, you know, because of my experience starting with those grassroots uh, rural artisans, you know, because one of my reasons to start the business was to make sure we can support them. You know, one of the commitments we made early on was that we will only work with artisans who are at risk, who are at the margins, who are, you know, at the place where they have this amazing art but don't have a market. You know, our commitment was not to work with large factories or large manufacturing organizations mm -hmm. who already have enough business because they are not at risk. But at the same time, when you, when you commit to work with artisans at risk, you start to realize that there, are, there is a reason why they're at risk. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, a lot of times they don't have the right styles or the right mm -hmm. materials or the right, yeah. their, their costing is off or they're, they don't, they're not consistent. So yeah. it, it, we realized that those folks need a lot of support and handholding to, yeah. to overcome the, the challenges they have. And one good thing that happened with me is when I was starting my business, my sister in India who shared my mission and my intention to support artists and communities took over as our India team, which allowed us to, you know, have our boots on the ground. Like we really mm -hmm. needed to develop a strong relationship with these artisans, a level of trust yeah. so that, so that we can be on the inside, we can understand their challenges and really work through yeah. their challenges. So, you know, for example, uh, we work with a community of artisans who do beautiful, these women who make this beautiful textile, but they didn't know how to make, how to stitch a bag well, mm. or how to source material that doesn't, you know, catch rust. So the mm. fact that however beautiful and expensive a bag is, if, you know, the zipper gets rusted, right. nobody wants to pay a cent for it. And yeah. not really artisans' fault, but if they don't, if they're not able to source the right ingredients or materials, then it doesn't work. So exactly, yeah. Those are the kind of things we understood, and then we have been, you know, supporting the artisans with. We sometimes yeah. send trainers to train the women how to stitch the bag correctly, mm -hmm. or connect them with the right sourcing. Hey, if you need zipper, this is a good quality zipper at the right price. Yeah. Uh, or if you're having trouble with logistics, there is a shipping company or. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of support yeah. that we provide to our artisans, which allow yeah. them to overcome their challenges and become yeah. sustainable. Um, yeah, it needs to be a lot more hands-on to yep. really uplift the smaller artisan groups. Now, I'm curious about the name Matterbumi. It has caught on and, you know, everyone's talking about it now. But what does that mean, Matterbumi, and how did you come up with it? So Matterbumi actually means motherland. Wow. Mother is mother and Bhumi means land in, in wow. Hindi. It comes from our intention that we have a shared earth, a shared mm. motherland that we all share. So I truly genuinely believe that we are all connected. We are all one. And we have our, we have a shared mother and we can all work together to mm. bring ourselves up irrespective of the physical boundaries. So that's that's the intention behind the name is that we are all one. Yeah, that's beautiful. And even just all your natural materials too. It just like it's just very grounding. I love that. Now, can yeah. you share more about your business model of Madarbumi? Like how you designed your business to work? Obviously, you have a you have a big team in India, and then now you have a big team in Austin, Texas. And yeah, how many people are on your team? Like how do you make this work? <laughs> Um, so we have a, we have a team of about twenty people in Austin, um, and we have a team of about twenty people in India. Wow. So all of our products are designed here in Austin. We have an amazing product design team, and what what they do is they study the art form and the capability of our artisans, and and apply that art form to products that would work for the Western market. Mm. So all of the product design is done here in Austin, and then. We send those designs to our team in India who also have 
product development folks on staff. And then they work with the artisans to bring those products to life. And some of our artisans are as rural as where they don't have an email. So our team in India has to do a physical printout, mail it to them, mm -hmm. wait for them to receive it. And wow. there, is, there is sometimes a number of iterations that are done. But I think it's, it's important for us to get the product right. You know, one of our philosophies is not to for not to have, you know, people buy our product because of charity, but because yeah. it's supporting a, a poor artisan. Yeah. We want our products to be some, to be beautiful and amazing and something that brings joy to the people who yeah. use them. And so we want our products to sell because of, you know, what they are. And when people find out that this is made sustainably, it's made fair trade, it's supporting artisans at risk, it's a cherry on the top. Yeah, that's why I love fair trade. I love the saying that fair trade is trade, not aid. And, you know, there are so many examples of that. It, it, what you said is so true. I feel like anytime we do something to support our artisans or to, you know, push on the sustainability element, it always comes back and helps us as a business. You know, about in 2000, I want to say eight, that time we didn't do any jewelry and we were contacted by a group of artisans who said we are jewelry makers we are really struggling we are being mm -hmm. exploited by middlemen we want to work with you and it was very heartfelt so we decided to find them meet them and this is a fun story about behind it but when we finally met those artisans and they said and we got this email and we had no idea there was no phone number it was a vague community location we didn't even know the address so our team in india and my wife ruchi they they kind of started to look for them and you know asking 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 they finally knocked at the door and you know the and asked the man opened the door and they, and they said the person who had written an email they that asked like is, is sana here and turned out sana was that man's daughter uh, and it's a very conservative community and, you know, strangers asking for your daughter is not seen as a good yeah. thing. So <laughs> there was a surprise on both sides. But going inside, we we saw these women doing beading and they told us that they've been done doing it for generations and they're at a point where they can't take it any further. And, you know, they said they're not looking for aid, they're looking for trade. Mm -hmm. And they're self-respect, mm -hmm. their motivation to make it work really touched us. And yeah. we just to support them, we launched a line of jewelry. It turns out, jewelry became our number one seller. Wow. So, and now, you know, that artisan community has like more than 70 artisans across different wow. cities. They, they have their own workshop. When we met them, they were working in a small dark room, like smaller than a bathroom without windows. And now they have their own workshop with, you know, good ventilation mm -hmm. and all of that. So, you know, we started to work with them to support them and they ended up supporting our business because yeah. of their art, because of their talent. And that's, that's what I love about, you know, fair trade that it's, it's a yeah. partnership. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I see from that, what you just shared. Like it's a true partnership because here you are saying the team in Austin is, you know, studying these designs and, you know, supplying these designs. But then yet you talk about how this team arrives from India and it's it's a true partnership and that's how you make it work. Now, yeah. how many total artisans do you have working in India now? 
So we work with over a thousand artisans wow. spread across forty different communities. Um, wow. The way you know arts originated in India, and I and I believe in most part of the the world is art in the region is focused on what are the natural materials that are available in that mm. community. So there are some communities that have a lot of rainfall and they have lots of uh, vegetation and trees. So they started working on wood products. Mm. And then there are communities which are dry, desert, and they don't have any vegetation, but they can grow cotton. Mm. So they started to do cotton textiles. And I think most of the art was, you know, came around with the intention of making the lives of those communities more lively, like, you know, beautiful textiles were worn by women or, you know, wood was carved to make people's homes more beautiful. So each of the art has its roots in where the community is. So in our case, when we, you know, find an artisan group based on where they are and what was the raw material that was available hundreds of years ago, their art is aligned to that. So each region mm-hmm. has a different art. So we have the privilege to, you know, work with so many different communities, which gives us so many different art forms mm-hmm. and which allows us to have a, a large variety of products. Mm-hmm. So as a result, we have stationery, we have jewelry, we have mm-hmm. home decor, and we work yeah. with lots of different materials. Yeah. And another thing, because the arts have been linked to the natural materials found in that region, all of our products are rooted in natural materials. Like mm-hmm. we don't use synthetic or plastic materials in our mm-hmm. products because no artists actually use those materials. Those mm-hmm. materials are only used by industries or factories, which we are not a part of. So inherently working with artisans and supporting art, yeah. our line has become more and more sustainable so yeah and then the other thing we have done in the last couple of years is we recognize that there are a lot of low-income communities who are more urban and as a result they don't have a traditional art but mm-hmm. we still wanted to create employment for them so we started a training women's training center uh, in jaipur where we invited women from low-income areas to come mm-hmm and create products using raw material that was available. So we would ask them to use old saris, which mm. are accessible, or old newspapers. Yeah. So, uh, so we have done, we do a lot of traditional art forms, but at the same, at the same time, we also do income generation projects by teaching women how, how to make yeah. products using readily available raw materials. Yeah, I I love going on your website because there's just a huge variety of products and different categories, but also, yeah, like you said, the different natural materials. And I love, love, love that you're keeping that those art forms alive. Seriously, you are you are transforming these communities by keeping these art forms alive. And I love what you shared about how each art form is rooted in, I'm sure, different purposes and you know, different regions are best for different art forms. And um, it's a holistic approach, you know, like you're keeping that alive. And I'm sure it's needed for that part of the region and that, you know, the soil and the earth, like, I just, this is so impactful. I love it. 
Something that I've always noticed about Madarbumi too, and I want to compliment you on this, is the quality is always so good and so consistent. Um, and I know how difficult that is with handmade products, especially you know working with developing communities. So how do you manage quality control um, over so many different types of products? And I know that this is something that's really crucial, especially for fair trade market to nail down in order for us to compete in the marketplace. So yeah, how do you do how do you do so well with quality? Couple of things. One, I truly believe that artisanal product needs to be given a higher platform. We want to sell our products because they're unique and amazing, not because they're helping poor people. And you know every artistic product is so rich that you know most times quality is Put aside when you're trying to reduce the cost of the product. Mm-hmm. You, if you want to sell something cheaper, you want it to be produced faster, right? So, mm-hmm. one approach is you tell artisan, hey, you know, right now your your cost to make this, you take an hour to make this, and I pay you three dollars. What if you make it in half an hour? And I don't care mm-hmm. about it; doesn't looking as good. But if you make more in the same time, mm-hmm. my cost is less. I can sell it cheaper. Mm-hmm. So that is the reason why a lot of artistic products, a lot of artists are encouraged to reduce the quality. Mm. Um, Sorry, I was just going to say that's so true because like mass produced products are lower quality because they're trying to crank them out as fast as possible. Yep. And for us, we truly believe that if we ask our artisans to reduce their quality, then they're degrading their work. Then they are, mm. it's not really art anymore. Yeah. So we, we have encouraged our artisans to upkeep their quality so we can highlight their products as special. So they get the platform that they need. And also having an amazing team in India. So mm-hmm. we have a staff of 20 people in India and we have about 15 people in that team who are quality checkers and packers. Mm. So every single product that is produced to come to us, go through a rigorous quality check process. And, you know, honestly, our supply chain working with artisans, it's not machine made. Uh, there is a lot of natural variation, not natural variation in the person, natural variation in the material. So there are a lot of variables and a lot of times there can be quality issues with the product. And if we don't catch them in India, if we catch them once they come to the US, there's nothing that can be done about them. Right. So. Yeah. Having a team in India, we check every single piece to make sure there is the right quality. Mm. Because we also want our artisans, uh, sorry, our retail partners to be successful with the product. We want the end consumer who buys our product to be happy with it. If they buy it once it breaks, then it's not helping us or our artisans. Yeah, so good. Yeah, I hope that more and more fair trade products could be elevated like this. Now you're also a member of Fair Trade Federation, which is actually how we met in person. Was at the recent Fair Trade Federation conference in Long Beach? Um, how long have you been a member, and how did you find Fair Trade Federation in the beginning? And I'm curious, how did it change, or maybe reinforce your business model? So we've been a member, I want to say, of the federation since 2007 or 2008. When I was starting my business, I, you know, met some of the fair trade businesses and I was inspired by what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them were also mentors to me in, you know, working through what it really means to be fair trade, the nine principles of fair trade. So 
the Federation has done a great job setting a standard for the, the U.S. market. There is Fated Federation, and then there is a larger Fated World Organization mm -hmm. as well. Um, and the Fated Federation is such an amazing group of Fated traders. There is a, a lot of businesses um, that import, design and import product like us. There are also a lot of retailers that are part of uh, Fated mm -hmm. Federation, and there's a lot of consumers as well who use Fair Trade Federation to identify a Fair Trade product. So having this, so it's, it's a community of people who believe in this mission. So yeah. even this community has been a huge support. We are all supporting each other, but at the same time, we are all inspiring each other. Mm -hmm. You know, we all, so many Fair Traders work in different countries and they all have, you know, a different approach mm -hmm. to solving the same problem. And I think it, it's been a source of support and inspiration for all of us. Yeah. I love the community. Fair traders are, are awesome. And yeah, like you said, when I first met the fair trade, I guess, community here in Los Angeles, I was surprised everyone's passionate about the similar thing, but working in different countries. So it's a really powerful group of people. Yeah. Fair trade LA is, is inspirational though. I am such a big fan. Uh, it's been operational since the very big, I mean, I met them when I just started my business and there's some mm -hmm. folks like Joan who's been there since that yeah. time. Uh, and there's a newer generation of folks in Faded LA. So you guys have really been an inspirational model for mm -hmm. other cities. And, you know, the amazing thing is that so many people are dedicated to this because of the cause. You know, yeah. it's, I know, you know, Faded LA is not a big business uh, process for people to make a lot of money. But I think mm -hmm. the dedication and hard work you guys are putting together is commendable yeah thank you for saying that i hope our board and our team's listening because that's super encouraging thank you before we dive back into today's episode let's take a moment to shine a spotlight on something truly remarkable did you know that modern booming is a proud member of the fair trade federation the fair trade federation or the ftf is an inspiring trade association comprised of verified fair trade enterprises these enterprises are deeply committed to fostering equitable and sustainable trading partnerships. Grounded in community values, they work tirelessly to support and strengthen one another, all while advancing a global movement in trade, one that values the health of the planet and the labor, dignity, and equality of all people. Being a part of this vibrant community of fair trade enterprises comes with numerous benefits. So if you're an entrepreneur running a social enterprise and you're eager to get involved, visit the membership section at fairtradefederation.org to discover what it takes to become verified and mark your calendars because coming this november is the eagerly anticipated fair trade federation holiday gift guide a curated collection of ethical and fair trade gifts that will make your holiday season even more special but friends there's even more save the day for our truly momentous event join us for the 30th fair trade federation conference and expo happening from march 26th to the 28th in 2024 in the vibrant city of Richmond, Virginia. Stay tuned for updates and details at thefairtradefederation.org. The Fair Trade Federation, the future of responsible trade. Now, let's get back to the episode. Now, back to Madarbumi though. <laughs> Madarbumi is sold worldwide, um, and that is not an easy thing to do, to grow and to be in business for 17 years, and now, you know, sold worldwide. How 
are you different now as a business than 17 years ago? I'm sure it's evolved a lot <laughs> and I'm sure you've had to make, yeah, a lot of adjustments and changes. Like what have you learned on this journey that may have worked or maybe didn't work? Oh my God. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, a lot. I think some things have remained the same and, and like in terms of principles, but I think, you know, how we do business has evolved quite a bit. So mm. just realizing that for a successful product, there needs to be, you know, a, a good design, a good story and, and a good price. And a lot of times sustainable products can sometimes be too expensive mm. and that makes them out of the reach of, you know, common people. And my goal is always to make sure that we are, we are, creating a beautiful product and it's well-priced for it to be successful. We also think about our retail partners uh, because we work with, uh, we are mainly a retailer or a wholesaler for a lot of retail stores. And we make sure we are providing providing them solutions and not just a product. Mm. So we, we create a lot of partnerships. We provide merchandising displays where needed for a lot of mm. our retail partners. And, we do a number of trade shows. So uh, we have a strong sales and marketing, you know, teams and processes that have been developed. We have sales reps and then, you know, during trade shows, we meet international distributors as well. And just the strength of the product, the strength of the story um, yeah. has allowed us to develop those partnerships. Also, you know, going back to the quality, quality of a company is reflected not just by the product quality but every touch point you have and it starts with you know how you look uh, in the pictures so making sure we have great pictures of our product making great pictures of our artisans so i think every touch point like when we do a trade show we make sure that we set, we do a good display because when a good brand or comes through if they see a, a food that is not well done how will they Think that mm-hmm. we have well done products so yeah you know the aspect of quality for an artisanal product company has mm-hmm. to look through every touch point so mm-hmm. you know one of the things that i've learned through and stuck to is to always make sure we have the best people mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. our you know our graphic design team mm-hmm. is so amazing our product team is so amazing like when we do shows we make sure our booth looks great so mm. our packaging is important so these are things that when i started i had no idea we did, mm. i didn't even think about packaging you know mm-hmm. my focus was just to be able to get a good product and that worked at that time at a smaller scale but if for us to grow as a professional brand which is what our goal mm. is we have to bring all aspects Uh, at the same quality and same level. So, Mm. you know, one of my advice to all business owners is to always make sure that you find good, the best people there is for each aspect. Mm. And it doesn't mean that you always have to go out of your budget to that, but there are people who, you know, are talented and are willing to, you know, support sustainable business, maybe a part-time, maybe you know, um, in their free hours, don't don't settle for less. Mm. Is, is what I would, you know, yeah. my advice. Yeah, 
That that is so good because I love that you circle back to the quality because yeah, you're right. The quality of the product reflects so many things. It, and I think if anything, the past 17 years, you've really brought quality into all the different touch points. And even, as you said, the people you've brought onto the team. So yeah, that's it's, definitely seen. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, you, you want to hire people you can't afford from a skill point of view. And one way to look at it is that, can you afford to not hire them? Mm. What is the impact on your business if you don't hire a person who has the right skill? So, Mm. you know, sometimes that helps me kind of think through who who do we, who do we, you know, need in our team, in our family. Yeah, that is so good. That's a great way to think about it. Now I'm curious, uh, you've been, you've seen this market change and evolve over the past 17 years, especially in the fair trade, handmade and gift market world. Now, where do you feel like this market is headed to in this, in the future? So the market has changed quite a bit. When I started, mm-hmm. there was not a lot of handmade. There was very little mm-hmm. fair trade. Mm-hmm. So you know, as, you know, and distributor like us, if we could get a decent quality product, it would sell. And, but over the years, I think there is a lot of companies that have brought sustainability on through a lot of different lenses. It could be a recycled material. It could be made by people with challenges. It could do a give back. So almost there are so many aspects of sustainability that are now available in the market that mm. it's very hard to distinguish fair trade from so many other forms of sustainability that we are seeing. You know, a cell phone mm. company is donating, you know, for something in Africa, or if you get a vaccine from Walgreens, you know, a child in need get a free vaccine. And all those are great projects, but if you think about from a consumer standpoint, like they're seeing so many sustainable initiatives all around them that Mm. it's very hard to differentiate uh, just on the story of fair trade. So I think, you know, we, over the years, the market expectation of product has gone up a lot. We, going back to the the trio of making sure it's a well-designed product, uh, the story is clearly communicated behind it and it's well-priced for it to do well in the market. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, you'll not be able to to grow your business uh, and making Mm -hmm. sure, you know, you're applying all the principles of business correctly, good customer service, good quality, and creating solutions for your consumers Mm -hmm. and partners, not just selling a product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you feel like there is still room to grow the fair trade and handmade market? I think handmade market has a lot of opportunity. I think we are mm-hmm. just scratching the surface. I think from a fair trade perspective, I think there is a, a little bit of lack of understanding of what fair trade means. Mm-hmm. Because fair trade has nine principles in it. It goes all the way from women's rights to making sure everybody's being paid fairly to no child labor to environmental sustainability to cultural identity preservation. Yeah. So it's very hard for people to understand what really what fair trade really stands for because mm-hmm. it stands for so much. So I think as a 
as a fair trader, we have to do, I, I feel like we have to simplify the message of fair trade a little bit for mm -hmm. people to connect to a call. So mm -hmm. in our products, like we, in different product lines, we focus on different message. So if it's mm -hmm. a if if it's a product made using recycled material, then we focus more on the recycled sustainability. Mm -hmm. If it's a um, you know product made out of, for example, made by a small uh, women's group in a small community, so we focus on who makes it and how mm -hmm. the product supports them. So we try to yeah. break it down a little bit. So I think that's an opportunity. Uh, in in growing fair is to making sure the consumer understands what yeah. it stands for. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, we just need a lot more education about fair trade, but also I like how you intentionally simplify the messaging and align it with your products because it is very much about education and storytelling. So yeah, that's, but yeah, that's really good insight for for where... I guess we need to improve on or where there's room to grow. That's exciting. Now, recently, Madarbumi expanded and started a new candle line called Candu. Please tell us more about this new venture and how it's making an impact. I'm very excited about this. So, um, <laughs> you know, over the past couple of years, you may have heard that Austin has gone through this real estate boom. Yeah. And, you know, our housing market there was a 40% appreciation in one year. It's crazy. Wow. But the result is that a lot of people could no longer afford to have a house or an apartment. Mm -hmm. So we started to just see a lot of people becoming homeless in Austin. Mm -hmm. And I started to, to think about, uh, you know, how we can reduce or fight homelessness. And I, I figured if, you know, what we are doing in India by creating sustainable jobs, giving people a chance to, you know, have a affordable way of living. What if we do the same thing in Austin? So Kandu was born out of the idea that we can create good jobs for our unhoused neighbors uh, mm -hmm. in Austin or people coming out of difficult situations where there is a lot of barriers to employment. So Kandu is a project where we and hire women coming out of at-risk situations. And we started with candles because it's something that is a consumable. People love good candles and it's something that we mm -hmm. could train our community members to do that. And it can be done in small batches. So it's a starting point for us to create a, a system where we can hire and train more women and give them an opportunity at coming, yeah. getting back into employment. Uh, we launched it last October. The candles have done really well. It's all soy wax, clean mm -hmm. scents, essential oils, great packaging, and it's doing really well. Wow. So I'm, I'm really excited. We just launched uh, a collection of room sprays, mm -hmm. and we are introducing new candle scents. So I'm, I'm very encouraged and motivated by the support we have gotten, and mm -hmm. uh, we'll continue to expand this initiative into into more products in future. Yeah, that is so exciting. I love that you're using this working business model to impact more people even here in the States. That is so encouraging. Thank you for seeing the need and doing that. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason for us to not support our, our local community um, mm. when we are at that. And, you know, there is a lot of synergy. Like, you know, candles, to be honest, is hard to produce in India because 
it needs a lot of scents that are not available, a lot of packaging yeah. which is not available. So yeah. it actually makes sense for us to to produce candles there um, mm-hmm. locally. So it's it's a win-win. Yeah, great addition to the to the product selection too. And I can't wait for this month for our fair package subscribers to to sample them too. It's exciting. Now, a lot of our, I know you shared a lot of tips throughout this whole episode, which I'm really excited about, but um, a lot of our listeners are small business owners and also people who may be interested in starting their own fair trade business. And as you know, it is not easy at all. (laughs) So can you give them some practical tips on how to build and grow and sustain a a successful fair trade business, whether it's about storytelling or marketing or product development? So a couple of things. One is don't be afraid to jump in. It seems the hardest, but what you will only learn when you are in it. It's it's very hard to have all the perfect knowledge in the world before you actually start. It's not going to happen yeah. because you so you will only you'll only learn when you come across a challenge. So I would say I love being an entrepreneur. It it allows you to do what you want the world to look like. Yeah. Um, so you you have to make it your own, and that can only be done when you start when you get started. So yeah. uh, it it does look scary. It it will evolve. It doesn't stay on a path. So I would say, you know, one thing that you keep consistent is the reason why you start the business. Mm-hmm. You know, so make sure you have a clear reason, and it should come from your heart. Don't start a business because there is a good financial opportunity. Because businesses takes a lot. It takes years, yeah. a lot of hard work and sweat and working weekends and travel. Yeah. And I don't think that, I, I think finding a, a deeper meaning behind that business will allow you to sustain the motivation to go yes. through that. So. Make sure that there is a reason more than just financial part to start a business that it has a meaning to you. And I think if if you have a deeper meaning, it it communic it it comes through the business and it 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 it's communicated and it makes a deeper impact on on your yeah. audience or, or your customers. So have a deeper meaning. Be true to it. You know what you are selling may change, but why you are selling. Keep that consistent. Also, don't, you know, as I said initially, hire, you know, whatever you're doing, do it the best you can. Mm. If you're designing a product, make sure it's designed well. And anytime you're presenting it, you know, put the best effort in it. Make sure the why of you, why you're doing that business comes through. Make sure you communicate why it helps the people to support you mm. and that you don't drop the quality. Um, mm. I think long-term, you know, businesses, when you start a small business, it it takes a long time to grow. Yeah. It'll, be, it'll be your baby for, for a while. And you want to make sure that you're building something with a strong foundation. Also, you know, I don't know, it's a little bit of philosophical piece of me but i i want to say that when you truly put your heart into something the universe does support us people will right people at the right time will come to you so mm-hmm. be open to 
to new ideas, new opportunities. Lead with uh, lead with a, a positive attitude and not with fear. Yeah. Wow. That was so good. <laughs> that alone, <laughs> just the last three minutes. Wow, that was so good. Yeah, and I I love the perspective you said. I my mom used said this to me when I first launched my business. Is like now you have a baby and now you have to nurture it. And I think that's how we need to see the businesses that we birth. Is like it may start out small, but once you start nurturing it, feeding it, like it will grow and it will take form in ways that you you know didn't expect. So. Yeah, so exciting. And now Madhubumi, 17 years later, it's it's looking so beautiful. What a beautiful child. <laughs> it, it is it is a teenager now. Yes. <laughs> now we always want to end with a fun question, maybe a difficult one for you. What is your personal favorite product from Madhubumi? <laughs> That's a difficult question. Um, yeah. I'm... I'm mainly because I'm not a shopper. Like I don't mm. own a lot of our own products. And I think my personal favorite is our eyeglass holders. Um, mm. We have this cute, quirky line of uh, wooden, carved wood eyeglass yes. holders in lots of different shapes, but they functionally, they work really well. You, you know, <laughs> you, I keep an eyeglass holder next to my bed. And now that I'm, you know, in my age, I have to wear glasses. I always, you know, the only time I get to read a book is at night when, you know, kids have gone to bed and everything. So I always find my glasses. <laughs> they never break. They're never lost. And, and I, and I love it. And I have this little, you know, turtle, not turtle, mm-hmm. sorry, a peacock eyeglass holder. And I, it's, mm-hmm. it's like my companion. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I, have a rela- I have a relationship with that guy. And uh, I, I love that. It's, I have one too. And yeah, you never lose your glasses. I have one of those wooden, um, face like the nose and the mouth oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. so practical and so such a beautiful decor in, at the house <laughs> it, it, that that nose might be our oldest the eyeglass holder mm. might be our oldest product still alive in the line yes still alive now this season we want to end every episode asking our guests this one question many of our, our listeners work in the social justice world as well and i guess how do you stay hopeful on this journey of fighting for a better world like what is the pra- what is the practice or even just a mindset that you have that you want to pass along to just help us stay hopeful on this journey i think to me we communicate more through our energy than mm-hmm. our actions and mm-hmm. i think it's it's i'm an optimistic person by nature and I'm always looking for, you know, the best in people or the best in the situation. And even if we are creating a small positive impact, being being grateful for that is really important. And feeling that and communicating that. So I don't think it's I don't think what matters is how much impact one person is creating, but the intention mm-hmm. that we want to make an impact. And I think if we recognize even a small change that we are creating, you know, recognizing that and celebrating that and sharing that will, yeah. will create this energy that I think we can pass on to the to the world. Mm. Again, going back to the why you start the business and if you make a little bit progress on that why, yeah. then coming back and communicating and sharing with yourself and feeling proud about it. I think like a lot of times, 
we are looking at what we couldn't achieve instead of what how far we have gotten so mm-hmm. celebrating you know even small steps allows mm-hmm. us like for our artists you know we our model is based on creating employment for financial sustainability but one thing we didn't realize is that when we start to work with an artisan who is struggling going through a difficult time they lose their self confidence mm-hmm. and when you lose your self confidence you start to lose a lot in your life some of the artisans that we you know start working with and when we meet them after a year or two or when i go back and meet them after a year or two i don't recognize them mm-hmm. because they physically look years younger mm-hmm. and i'm like who is this? who is this guy you're not the guy i i met like a year <laughs> wow. ago and he's like no i'm the same guy and <laughs> because their self confidence starts to come back when yeah. marketing can buy and sell their product then they realize oh there must be something good in my product i can sell it mm-hmm. to other people and that self confidence transforms their life and yeah so there are so many stories like this and i think it's important mm-hmm. to to recognize you know every bit of impact you make and yeah. feel that and sharing that i think keeps keeps it alive and going yeah that is so important it's cuz on this journey is so easy to say see all the things we still have to do but having to consistently sit down and pause and reflect on the good that has happened is so crucial on this journey Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom. What a great episode. I've learned so much and I hope our listeners have too. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us Manish. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. You know, I'm also happy to to share more if if any of your listeners, you know, have any more questions. I'm happy I'm happy to to share my thoughts and I've had a lot of mentors in my journey and I'm happy to share mm-hmm. my experiences with other folks. Thank you. We may take you up on it. We may do a webinar or some sort of training to share your experience with us. Anytime. And thank you again for the work you guys are doing in sharing these stories with your audience. Thank you so much, Manish. That was such a wholesome conversation. It's always so inspiring to me when I meet people who are committed to the long haul. And to hear the wisdom and hope from Manish, who's been dedicated to the fair trade model of employing artisans and preserving culture for over 17 years is just incredible. I hope you are more inspired than ever to shop and support fair trade artisan products, especially this holiday season. Moderbumi is giving our listeners 20% off their entire site at moderbumi.com. That's M-A-T-R-B-O-O-M-I-E.com. Just use the code FTLA at checkout. As always, you can find this information and more in our show notes at fairtradela.org slash podcast. All right, bye for now. I want to thank the creative team behind the Fair Talks podcast, our executive producer, Juliette Bucquerel, our editor, Kaden Sullivan, our marketing team, Jasmine French, Elena Alcero, and Lizzie Case. 
hope you enjoy this episode of the Fair Talks podcast. Thank you for being a part of our community and sharing the fair trade message. Thank you again to our sponsor, Fair Trade USA, for making this possible. Now, are you ready to create change? The next time you're out shopping, just pick up one fair trade item to buy, like coffee, chocolate, or bananas, and make a difference. Ask your office, church, business, school, or your family to shop more fair. If you have any questions or want to learn more, head over to fairtradela.org slash podcast for show notes, discount codes, and additional resources. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And follow us on social media at FairTradeLA to join our amazing community of fair trade lovers. Tune in to our next Fair Talks conversation to hear more life-changing stories. Thanks for listening.